0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, the grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here and those who are gathering in the variety of ways we gather these days, uh, in the Family Life Center or at homes all around our region or beyond. So I want to welcome you into a time of study now as we continue our series called Habits. And as we do, can I encourage you to take your own scripture and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 35. It's the context of the story of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday, right? We've already been blessed by seeing our children come in and lead us in worship as a reminder of that glorious day when Jesus entered into the city. Most of the Gospel writers describe the process before entering the city, and it involves a variety of details. But in summary, he has his disciples go and secure an animal, a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. Once they have secured the animal and his pathway in, we pick up the story, verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks onto the colt, they sat Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds and power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest heaven. Now, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The reading of the sacred word, it's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's take a moment and offer A word of prayer before the Lord. Now today, on this day, when we remember your triumphal entry into Jerusalem, our simple prayer is this, that you would empower us to to find the courage of taking our cloaks off and laying them before your feet. Help us for just a moment or two to remove the cloaks of all our old patterns, patterns of thinking, patterns of behavior, any pattern that keeps us from welcoming you. Help us this day to lay them before you at your feet and help us to find in our spirit the capacity to break off branches from trees and wave them in the air so that you may truly once again enter into the Jerusalem of our hearts. We make room for you now. And we pray that you would come in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. So on this day when we celebrate the triumphal entry, when we celebrate the shouting And the loud voices, the hosannas that could not be stifled. When we talk about that, we are now deep into our study on the habits, right? The spiritual disciplines. We've been talking about some practical, everyday spiritual practices or holy habits that we can put in place that keeps us grounded in and growing through Christ. And on a day when we celebrate shouting that could not be stifled, I want to talk about the spiritual discipline of celebration. The spiritual discipline of celebration. Now, one of our favorite movies is a 1999 film called Nodding Hill. Oh, I hear you. Yes, it's a great movie. It's a romantic comedy. It's a rom-com starring Hugh Grant right, and Julia Roberts. And it tells this story of this humble, unassuming, or as, as the Brits may say, an unassuming old bloke who's running a, a travel bookshop. Humble, simple, plain. But he meets this world-famous movie star, played by Julia Roberts. She comes into his bookshop one day, and they have this energy, this chemistry, and something's up, and the storyline is about the unlikely romance that emerges between these two in this odd pairing, right? But what makes the movie so enjoyable and so compelling for me is this. Strange array of characters in the movie. This man who owns the bookshop, William Thacker, has the best friends. They're all so weird. There's like this this goofy guy, this nerdy guy, really smart guy, somebody who's not so smart. And it's really just a snapshot of all humanity, all of us, really. And one day, Thacker's little sister has a birthday and all the friends gather together in the home of two of them to celebrate her birthday. As they gather together, that scene that, that describes their or that demonstrates their celebration involves everything that you might expect to see at a great celebration. I mean, the man of the house had been slaving all day in the kitchen, preparing guinea fowl. They gather around this table and there's food, and wine, and candles, and desserts, and, and, and brownies, and laughter, and love, and safety, and security, and community, and sharing. It is a snapshot of pure, unadulterated joy. And, and I wonder if in order to springboard from that image into our study, I might give you 57 seconds of a glimpse of that night of joy, as they celebrate one of their own. Take a look. What do you think of the guinea fowl? I'm a vegetarian. Oh God. So, how's the guinea fowl? Best guinea fowl I've ever tasted. It's amazing how you can speak right to my heart. lipstick on the <laughs> belt. Oh, <okay. laughs> Oh, you can light up the Try I can How you i How firmly establishes what I've long suspected, that we really are the most desperate lot of underachievers. Great. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. (laughs) All right. So a picture of a night filled with enjoyment of one another, of love and laughter and safety and security with one another. But i got to tell you, as beautiful as that scene is, I mean, that's a picture, I think, in the back of my mind of something Jesus had in mind when Jesus said, Look, I came that you might have life and Have it to the fullest and abundant life where you enjoy the community of one another and of me. And you live in the fruitfulness of this garden I've created for you to live and laugh and love with one another. And yet, i got to tell you, for a period of time, that scene was hard for me to watch. Can you handle kind of a pastoral transparency for a minute? Yeah. It's hard for me to watch because there was a period of time early in my ministry when we were serving another church in Tennessee and it was a difficult time. I mean, a dark time of depression and questioning. Now, everything at home was fine. The marriage was the best thing I had going for me. The children were fantastic. At home was the safety net, right? But it was in a town with A small church and small thinking that comes with a small town and you know me by now and you know that would drive me a little bit bonkers but it was a town in which we had a small staff so it was me and one other person so I did all the hospital visits the nursing home visits and I preached wait for it three times a week three sermons a week listen public service announcement nobody needs to hear any preacher three times a week all right (laughs) I figured I'd, I'd get an amen from the base section on that. Thank you for restraining yourself. Nobody should hear a preacher three times a week. So I just put three sermons into one sermon every Sunday for you. That's why we're here so long. And, and it was a dark time because I know that may be difficult for some of you to, to understand because many church people, church folk, put pastors in a different category. You do. You don't mean to, you just do. You hear us telling these stories about our family and about life and joy, and you don't understand that it's possible to preach joy and live what feels like a joyless life. It was a time of questioning, and I wondered if I even needed to be in ministry anymore. I found a good therapist to help me ask questions I needed to ask. Because all the while, I'm saying to myself, why can't I have that kind of joy? Where there's this this sense of fullness of relationships and friendships who know us and welcome us and let us be who we are and not always make it about church, right? And so I said to myself, well, you know, the psalmist says... Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And I convince myself, well, maybe we're in the nighttime and, and one day it'll come. One day joy will come after all this is settled and, and something changes and, and we get to the other side. Whatever decade that is, maybe joy will come. But all the while, in the back of my soul, I was hearing this echo of the words of Jesus. I came that you might have life you, and have it more abundantly. I came to convince you that you are free, and you are forgiven, and you may eat of the fruitfulness of love and joy and compassion and community so that you can show others what that kind of fruit tastes like. You are free. And so I began to see Scripture in a variety of different ways like I had never seen it before. I began to think of joy in a way that I had never thought of it before, and celebration. And God used, of all things, this strange scene from a movie in 1999. Because the part I didn't show you and won't show you, but I'll describe it to you, is after dinner, there's one brownie left on the table. And they have to decide who's going to eat the brownie. So they say, I'll tell you what, the brownie will go to the person with the saddest story here. (laughs) And they all went around the table, that table of joy, and began to testify. Bernie speaks up and says, well, I am in a dead-end job that I don't understand. People are being promoted up all around me. I, I haven't had a girlfriend since puberty. I'm totally alone. Well, then Thacker's little sister chimes chimes in, and she she reveals her self-hate or her sense of shame over her own body image. I don't have real hair, I've got goggly eyes, and all the men that I chase after are cruel men, and she confesses a pattern of getting into relationships with cruel men who leave her wounded. Another one begins to tell her story, but she tells her story from a wheelchair, because She's paralyzed from the waist down from an accident and she reveals to the table that she learned that week she will never give birth to children. And just when they they thought maybe at least Anna, the superstar, the, the movie star, has it all together, she said, well, what about me? I've got a story. And to their surprise, the one who they would assume has a life of glamour and esteem, she begins to reveal a hidden brokenness. She carries around, even in her celebrity. And every time her heart is broken, it's splashed about in the tabloids as as if it's entertainment for the world. And I don't don't know where it was or when it was, but at some point, I began by by the help of the Spirit and through the reading of God's Word and the viewing of this strange scene, I began to see that joy is not the absence of pain. Joy emerges not when everything is great, not when everything is settled and all life is going as we hoped it might go, but in that scene, joy emerges from the stories of sorrow. It's possible for you and for me to learn to celebrate joy even when we have every evidence to the contrary. And the reason is because, well, joy and sorrow are twin eggs in the same nest. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. Joy and sorrow come as twin eggs in the same nest. And yeah, They both hatch in our lives. And yeah, of course, we're going to pay attention mostly to the sorrow that seems to take over our energies. Yes, because of course, we're going to be prone to pay attention to what's most urgent and most painful. We'll be focused upon the thing that we're missing. We'll tend to grieve the thing that was broken. Yes, we'll focus on the sorrow that a relationship hasn't been repaired and it's been so long. We'll grieve over the reality that the client who we banked everything on walks right out and gives his business to somebody else. We'll grieve and we'll focus on sorrow because that egg hatches and we have to give it our attention. And of course, you and I are prone to do that because we are prone to be negative and jaded. And all it takes is a consecutive series of disappointments and heartaches to convince us that sorrow is the dominant story of our lives. But sorrow is not the only egg in the nest of your heart. Joy has been brought to us as well. But the trouble is, it's more difficult to see joy and embrace joy and choose joy because joy kind of hides around the corner. It's not as abrasive and as in your face, and it takes practice recognizing the joy that God has brought to be a part of our story. This is why we call celebration a spiritual discipline, because it takes work. It takes practice actually rehearsing the joy that has been given to us. Is this why God commanded? celebrations in the Bible. Commanded, not suggested, not, hey, when things work out and you get your life all ironed out, then maybe you ought to have a party. No. God commanded his people no less than six required festivals in the Old Testament. So the people come out of bondage, out of Egypt, and on their way out of bondage into the wilderness that will take them to their freedom they know that on the other side of freedom comes promised land and joy. Oh, it's a land like, I don't know, flowing with milk and honey and guinea fowl and brownies. It's coming one day after wilderness, but God knew that as they leave the, ex- the exodus, as they leave uh, Egypt and move into the wilderness, God knew that the only thing they would see The only thing that would capture their attention, the only thing upon which they would fix their mind's attention, would be the wilderness. Or as the Torah describes it, an arid wasteland of scorpions and snakes. Have you ever been in a season that felt like you were in an arid wasteland? Of scorpions and snakes. So God commands six festivals, parties, three in the spring and three in the fall. Parties like this the festival of Passover or unleavened bread to celebrate the exodus from Egypt, the festival of first fruits, so that when the harvest came in, they would give a double portion as an offering to God to celebrate the way God has been fruitful in his love for them, the festival of weeks where they celebrated the compassion of God and the merciful acts of God to redeem them. The festival of trumpets, where the shofar is blown and this trumpet reminds everyone with an earshot of their mutual fidelity with God, of God's faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to God. The day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the day when we celebrate redemption, forgiveness, salvation, and then finally the festival of booths where the people remember all of the creative ways in which God sustained them through their wilderness time of sorrow when they assumed that the dominant story for them would be nothing but an arid wilderness, a wasteland of poisonous snakes and scorpions. God commands them to celebrate, to throw a party. And why? Because when you are forced to celebrate even when you don't want to get dressed and go to the party when you are forced to get up and go and blow out the candles and wrap the gifts and unwrap it and pop the streamers and and blow the the sound the the horn whenever you are forced to do that here's what happens the people they sing songs that remind them of where they used to be they read poetry. They recite old stories around campfires. They, they dance particular dances that remind them of where they've been and they eat food that has symbolic power to remind them that they may not be, as the old spiritual says, I may not be where I need to be. I may not be where I want to be. <laughs> but thank God Almighty, I'm not where I used to be. Do you know what the power of celebration is? Celebration empowers us to trace the grace. To trace the grace. It is so easy to despair. It is so easy to be cynical and negative. It's so easy to succumb to this illusion that sorrow is the dominant story that we live because all it takes is one loss after the next to convince us that it's all futile. Or as the as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's all vapor, it's all vapor. But when we celebrate, we trace the grace. It allows us to say, look, that's where I used to be. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't believe I could make it through it, but it was so bad, I couldn't see my way out of it. And yet, it didn't kill me. I'm still here. And the one who was with me then is the one who has brought me to this place now. And when we celebrate, whether that's on high days like Easter and Christmas or every week like on Sunday morning worship or every day when you send a simple text to your friend group to say, look what the Lord has done for me. When we celebrate, it's as if, well, we're performing a subversive act in a world that is dominated by sorrow, celebration is a subversive act. Celebration pulls the rug right out from underneath whatever dominant story has kept you thinking that this is as good as it's gonna get. And and do you know what the best example of that is? Palm Sunday. I mean, we know the story of Palm Sunday Kinda, right? We know that Jesus comes in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey or the colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know the palm branch story and the kids wave the branches. And we know the cloaks are down on the ground and he he comes in, you know, and that's that's great. It's worth celebration. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what we sometimes forget is that on that same weekend, there was another parade. that was led by rome because every time there was a party a festival a a religious ritual celebration like passover which began yesterday right passover began yesterday 2021 but every time the passover began rome would send reinforcements to the garrison just outside the city because predictably well there would be uprisings you never know when folks sing songs that remind them of their freedom I mean, when folks tell stories about how God set them free from the last empire, when they they dance in such a way that actually gets them to believe that they are free, you never know who they might end up following. Next thing you know, they'll start breaking branches off of trees and waving them in the air and following someone they call a Messiah. So Rome would send in a garrison or send in more troops to, to reinforce the garrison just outside of Jerusalem so that if there was an uprising, they would be squashed quelled, tamped down in a hurry. And this parade that comes in from the west, Jesus from the east, the parade from Rome coming from the west, is led by Pontius Pilate. And he's at the front of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers coming to give, give a demonstration of absolute power coming to demonstrate the dominant story of their subjugation. Are you with me? And in the West, we see this picture of the story that has absolute domain over them, absolute power. I mean, they weren't always under Rome, but when they came out of Egypt, they were then under the hand of the Assyrians, and eventually under the hand of the Babylonians, and then under the hand of the Greeks, and just recently, they're under the hand of the Romans, And the Romans come in with this demonstration of absolute power. This is the story. This is your fate. Sorrow, subjugation, this is as good as it gets. I love what Marcus Borg and John Dominic Croson, uh, how they describe the, the entrance of that imperial parade of power. This is how they describe it. It was a visual panoply of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, and the sounds the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust. It was not only a visual demonstration of imperial power, it was a visual demonstration of imperial theology. Because Caesar was believed to be the son of God. There are inscriptions on coins and walls and banners in the ancient world that Caesar is Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Caesar. And this demonstration of the divine image of Caesar moving into town, well, now it makes sense why Jesus chooses to enter the town on the humility of a donkey because he knows that this image in comparison to the dominant image that has convinced the people that they are subjugated and never to be free this image of a lowly humble donkey will trigger something in them will trigger an awareness of an ancient prophet Zechariah 9 9 where we read these words Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this picture, this juxtaposition between what seems to have all the power, this seems to be the dominant story and yet here comes a different story this is sorrow and this is joy and yet joy subverts sorrow because they sing hosanna because they recognize that the one sitting on the donkey is the one who can pull the rug out from underneath every power and principality and threat of darkness in this world whether that threat is an empire with a military cavalcade Or that threat is depression, disappointment, rejection, isolation, sorrow, fear, anger. The reason they sing Hosanna is because they see sitting on the back of that lowly animal the rescuer of the ages. I love what William Vander says. William Vander says, Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. And Christ never insists on only showing up when you get rid of your trouble. Christ is the one who is incarnate in the middle of your trouble. Christ pulls up a seat at the table of sorrow so that you know there is a greater meal to be had. The question is, Do you recognize that the Christ of the ages has always been with you? I mean, the Christ that we talk about, we talk about the Christ who was with God at the beginning of creation. Before anything was created, the Christ of God existed. And the Christ was most visibly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The Christ was raised on the third day, victorious and alive. And if that Christ is still living and alive and among us today, the truth is, in the middle of your sorrow, joy is within reach. You say, well, how do you access it? How do we experience it? It's a discipline. It's a choice. And whether the celebration is on high days, like Easter and Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Christmas, Or the celebration, like I said, is in the simplicity of a text to a friend that says, I didn't think I'd make it through that test, but I made it. I didn't think that that conference call was going to go well, but I made it. And God held my hand through the whole thing. When we practice the discipline of recognizing the Christ who is among us, then joy becomes our dominant story and sorrow comes trailing behind. Now, one of the most powerful parts of this story for me is the part where he, he, the, the Pharisees are, are getting anxious. The Pharisees are anxious because they know this juxtaposition between this, this imperial parade with all this power And this humble parade on the donkey, they knew what it was. It was a political statement. And they were afraid that if Pilate got wind of this, he would see it as a mockery of his authority. And it was. And the Pharisees said, shut your disciples up. Keep their mouths closed. And Jesus said, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. A couple years ago, I I had the unique honor of serving as adjunct professor at um, McAfee School of Theology for a course in preaching. So I got to spend some time with some students teaching the art of preaching. And one particular week, I said, here's what we're going to do for your sermons, because they all had to preach in class. We're going to workshop your sermons a little bit. So pick your text, and then once you have your text, I'm going to walk you through how I kind of find my way to a preaching moment. Because you go and you look for the place in the text that has tension, where there's trouble, where something doesn't seem to, to set right. And allow the tension in the text to invite you to it and bring your imagination with you and ask yourself, what's up with that? So in this context of a classroom, one young lady, Emily Harbin, An amazing young minister. She says, uh, she picked this passage, this text right here. I said, Emily, we're going to workshop your passage. So tell me, you've been sitting with this text for a a few days now. What part of the text seems to grab your attention most? She said, well, so it's this this place where Jesus says the stones will cry out. I said, okay, good, good. What? so more what's what's so where does that provoke your imagination where where are you with that said, i don't know i just i'm just kind of thinking with well isn't there a place in another gospel you know like a few days later when he's crucified and then he's resurrected isn't there a place where doesn't the gospel writer say something about a an earthquake I said, yeah, in Matthew's gospel, when he's crucified, there's an earthquake. When he's raised, there's the earthquakes, yes. And she said, okay. All right. And I said, what? Where, where are you going? And she said, well, isn't that like rocks crying out? <laughs> oh, my God. And the student becomes the teacher. And she, she weaves this sermon that... I promise you, is one of the best sermons I have heard anywhere, in which she brings in images from all creation to make the point that all creation from the very dawn of time has been heralding this thing that you and I are just now playing catch up to. That the rocks cry out, yes, and the tectonic plates beneath the surface that shift cry out, yes. The sun, the moon, the stars cry out as the choir sang just a moment ago from Psalm chapter 8. And yes, the, the trees clap their hands and the, the waves dance on the, the oceans deep. The point? All creation is celebrating already. We're late to the party. Amen. You and I are invited to practice the discipline of celebrating because it's part of the created order itself that all the creation proclaims there is a way to subvert the dominant story of your sorrow and that is by taking the cloak off and laying it before the feet of the one who is and was and is to be and and you ask "How how do I do that you do that and I do that the same way they did that You find a way to humbly come before the Christ of God. And and you remove the cloak of your assumptions. You remove the cloak of your sin. You take off the cloak of the old patterns of thinking about God and about people and about yourself. You take everything off. And you lay it on the ground before his feet, and you find some palm branches, and you wave it somewhere in the air, and you say to Christ, I cannot change my story by myself. If it were up to me to change my story from sorrow to joy, I wouldn't know where to start. I would end up making my story more sorrowful than it was to begin with. But you have the ability, Christ, to subvert empires. You have the ability to turn over the tables of every power and principality, every darkness that seems to threaten my my stability, my salvation, my hope. And so I lay my life before you. And I yield myself. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. And I open up my heart that you may, that you may enter not just Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem of my heart. That you may be king. And, and that I may be your subject. And if you pray a prayer like that, then I want you to understand that he has heard that. Whether you use words that sound like that or not, if if your spirit bends toward Christ and you humble yourself, he takes you in and gives you new life. And then you, along with everyone else in this journey, begin the practice of celebrating, the practice of tracing his grace in our lives so that we may abide right now on earth in a way that we will be abiding forever in the age to come. Now, if today you have prayed that prayer or you want to talk more about that kind of decision in your life, there are two ways you can do that. The first is if you're in the sanctuary here, you'll see that David is up here and Glenn is up here ready to talk to you after worship. If you're in the Family Life Center, you'll see over to your left, there are pastors waiting to speak to you. And if you're at home and you want to to take a step of faith and join the right parade so that your joy may be your dominant story, we want you to email us. Connect at jcbc.org. That way we continue this conversation with you and take your journey seriously. But for now, now it is time for the church to depart empowered in his name. So I'm going to ask that if you are here on campus, Sanctuary, Family Life Center, if you would stand to your feet as you are able for a final blessing. This is our prayer that wherever it is that you go from this place, Christ would go before you to prepare your way. Christ would go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word, May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm.